This is Jeremy Banks. His girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, her death was officially ruled a suicide, but not everyone believes the sheriff's conclusion. Then, a private citizen named Eli Washtock began investigating her case. But before he could finish, he was murdered. We're picking up where Eli Washtock left off. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct, Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Download Criminal Conduct wherever you listen to podcasts. We would like to welcome to the show our most recent Patreon supporters, Doug K., Lisa S., Dr. Tiff, Titer 17, and special thanks to Linda C. for suggesting this topic. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The bond between a mother and child is a strong one. Most mothers would do anything for their child and vice versa. Some would even kill for their child. But what happens when a mother recruits her son to aid in her life of crime, which included offenses ranging from petty theft to murder? That is precisely what happened with today's story about Sante and her son, Kenny Kimes Jr., a mother-son duo that became unlikely yet dangerous criminals, taking the lives of at least three innocent people. Okay, on to the show. Asante Kimes' extraordinary life had extremely humble beginnings. She was born on July 24th, 1934, as Sandra Louise Singers in Oklahoma City. Her mother was 34-year-old Mary Van Horn and was of Dutch descent. Her father was 44-year-old Pram Singers, who was East Indian. She had an older brother, Kareem, and an older sister, Reba, and would later have a younger sister. The Singers were farmers in Oklahoma, and the Dust Bowl hit them just as hard as it did every other Oki. So, in the mid-1930s, the family packed up and moved to Los Angeles. Shortly after arriving, Pram abandoned his family. Little Sandra, who went by Sandy, was only three years old. By the time Sandy was eight years old, she was a street kid in Studio City. She would scrounge and beg for food while her mother tried to make ends meet as a sex worker. It was on the streets that an eccentric woman named Dottie Seligman discovered Sandy. Dottie was taken by the little girl and would buy her meals. She then had an idea. Her brother-in-law, 48-year-old Army National Guard Colonel Edwin Chambers, was also from Oklahoma. He and his wife Mary, who was unable to have children, could provide a loving, stable home for Sandy. Soon enough, Sandy Singers became Sandy Chambers, and her life changed forever. Or, at least, that's one version of Sante's childhood. 
it's undoubtedly the most subscribed to version. It's the one she testified to when she was on trial for slavery charges. And it's the version that her best friend from childhood, Ruth Tannis, describes in the book, The Mother, The Son, and The Socialite, the true story of a mother-son crime spree. But Kent Walker, Sante's first son, didn't buy this narrative as pure fact. Yes, he saw a birth certificate that said Sante Singers, but forging official documents was Sante's claim to fame. What is less in dispute is Sandy's life in junior high and high school. She was a B student who was active in many different clubs, Spanish, 4-H, Future Homemakers of America, and the school paper. She needed to control everything she was a part of, which alienated some of her peers. But one peer, who stuck with her through high school and beyond, was Ruth Tom, later Tannis. Sandy called her Booby. There was another student who took notice of Sandy named Ed Walker. Ed was tall, handsome, and had a man's man quality to him. By his sophomore year and Sandy's junior, they were going steady. After Sandy graduated from high school, she and Ruth moved to Reno and attended secretarial school. Though Ed pined for her while she was away, Sandy had moved on. While Ed was in Seattle studying architecture, Sandy met a man named Lee Powers. The two would marry on May 9, 1956, in the Chamber's living room. Lee was an Army officer who dreamed of becoming a high school physical education teacher after he got out of the service. His desires must have fallen too short for Sandy, as they divorced after a year of marriage. Sandy needed someone with the ambition to become more than just a teacher. After her divorce, Sandy called on Ed Walker once more. Once Ed heard Sandy calling, he left Seattle and his architecture degree to be by her side. The couple wed on November 9, 1957. During the first years of their marriage, they lived in Sacramento where Ed found success as a real estate developer. But no matter how much money Ed made, Sandy's spending outpaced his earnings. That's when she began to get in trouble for shoplifting. Sandy shoplifted even when she had enough money to pay for things, indicating that she had a problem. But no matter what she did, Ed was spellbound and wouldn't leave her. Sandy's pension for arson also began around this time. A week before Christmas in 1960, a fire started in the kitchen of the house Ed designed and destroyed it. Ed received $10,000 from the insurance company to rebuild the kitchen. It would have been a financial gain for Sandy had she not already spent $13,000 on Christmas presents. She tried to commit insurance fraud, which would later become another go-to crime for her, by claiming an additional $6,000 on an imaginary property that was destroyed in the fire. The insurance company didn't buy her claims. Sandy changed her name during this time and became Sante with two E's. She also increased her spending. What Ed couldn't satisfy monetarily, she found in other boyfriends. Ed knew that Sante was running around on him, but could never bring himself to stand up to her and leave. Even after her son Kent was born on September 27, 1962, Sante didn't slow down her spending, shoplifting, and fraud. It became a cycle where Ed would find success as a developer, get a little money, 
Sante would spend it all, Ed would go bankrupt and the couple would have to move and start all over again. Finally, Sante put Ed out of his misery. After bankrupting him a couple of times, she divorced him when Kent was around five years old. She needed a much richer man to satisfy her expensive tastes, and that became her ultimate goal. Sante's beauty and charm landed her no shortage of wealthy men willing to pay for her expensive lifestyle. But none of them was a millionaire, and that was what Sante wanted. That all changed when she met Ken Kimes. There are two conflicting stories about how the two met. One was that Ken went after Sante because he needed a good public relations person for his American Bicentennial plan. The other was that Sante read an article about Ken in a millionaire's magazine. Regardless of how it happened, the two got together in 1971. Ken was already divorced, and Sante was the polar opposite of his ex-wife. Ken was used to running the show, but that would not be the case with life with Sante. Still, there was something in her beauty, charm, as well as in her bag of sexual tricks that drew Ken in and never let him go. Ken and Sante became partners in crime. When he met Sante, Ken was not an innocent man. He had a history of fraud too, but he took it to another level when he met the buxom brunette. One of their first schemes was in 1974 and centered around America's bicentennial or the celebration of its 200th anniversary. The plan began in 1971 when they started selling posters and bumper stickers. They kicked it up a notch the next year when they, without the approval of the Bicentennial Commission, used their letterhead to send out a press release that called Ken the Honorary Bicentennial Ambassador of the United States of America. To everyone's surprise, except for maybe Sante's, she convinced the Bicentennial Commission to give Ken the title in 1973. She also got him on the Rose Bowl the same year, where he spoke about patriotism. It would have been a very lucrative scheme for them, had Sante not essentially tossed the Kimes name in the mud by crashing four A-list parties in Washington, D.C. in one night. This included one where she and Ken got their pictures taken with then-Vice President Gerald Ford and his wife, Betty. They rubbed too many people the wrong way, especially when people discovered that the documents Sante used to get Ken an audience with Pat Nixon had been doctored. There were hardly any sales for the posters and bumper stickers they had made, losing them thousands of dollars. Not long after the bicentennial scheme, Sante gave birth to Kenneth Kareem Kimes on March 24, 1975. He had a half-brother from his mother's previous marriage and a half-brother and half-sister, from his father's previous marriage. His family nicknamed him Kenny. Kenny's father doted on him while his mother was fiercely overprotective. Sante was 41 years old when she gave birth to Kenny. In his book, Son of a Grifter, Kent recalls the pregnancy being a complete secret and not finding out about Kenny's birth until after he was a week old, even though he lived with Sante and Ken at the time. He believed that Sante kept the pregnancy from the family so that Ken would not make her give up the baby. But Kenny had his father wrapped around his finger from the very beginning. By now, 
the Kimes family lived in Las Vegas. From the moment Kenny was born, Sante made sure he didn't want for anything. He had nannies as a baby, and instead of attending school, he had private tutors. And he had his mother every single minute of the day. She controlled every person who came into contact with her son, including the neighborhood children who played with him. For that reason, Kenny was mostly alone. All of the nannies and maids that worked for the Kimes did so under horrid conditions. They were forced to work seven days a week without pay. Sante treated them so poorly that it could almost be called torture. Often, she locked the women in their room and only let them out when it was time to work. Witnesses brought in to testify against Sante during her slavery trial, who were mostly Kenny's tutors, painted Sante as a monster who took advantage of the women she smuggled in from Mexico. She promised them a better life only to give them a life of misery. For this, she was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Kenny got a brief reprieve from his lonely life when Sante was in prison, serving her sentence for slavery charges. Later, Kenny would say this time was the best in his life as Ken let him live like a regular kid. But everything went back to how it had been before when Sante was released from prison two years early in 1989. When Ken Kimes died in 1994, he left Sante and Kenny nothing. He wrote his original will in 1963 and left his entire estate to his two children from his first marriage. He never amended it, and no one knows why. The exclusion from the will left Sante and Kenny broke, but no will could stop Sante from taking what she deemed was hers. Sante kept Ken's death a secret from his family for almost two years. During that time, she used his death certificate to strip his estate as much as she could. At this point, Sante brought Kenny into her schemes. Kenny left college after one year to join his mom in committing fraud to keep up with Sante's high standard of living. One type of fraud they like to commit involves stealing property from other people and transferring it to a shell company that Sante and Kenny owned. It was this fraudulent activity that ultimately brought them to Irene Silverman's door. Eccentric socialite Irene Silverman loved to have company over she loved the company so much that she turned her mansion on Manhattan's East 65th Street into a motel of sorts with nine rooms she would rent out to the best New York had to offer. This lifestyle worked to keep the widow from loneliness until she rented to the wrong man. On July 5th, 1998, before police knew that Irene Silverman was missing, they pulled over a Lincoln that was registered as stolen. Inside the vehicle was the mother and son criminal duo, Sante and Kenny Kimes. Though at the time, police had no clue they had in their custody two of the most wanted people in America. They were also the last two people to see Irene Silverman alive. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Lainey here, and I'm here to talk to you about Audible. And I'm sure you've heard about Audible in pretty much every podcast you've listened to, and that's because they truly are great, and we really do utilize them. 
I love Audible Books. Not only does it help with true crime research, but it also just helps me unwind when I'm driving in my car, home from work, or going to work, or when I'm just having, you know, some alone time in the car for myself. Or I go out into my she shed, hook up my Bluetooth speaker, and listen to an audiobook while chilling. See, the great thing about Audible is that it's really versatile. You can download titles and listen offline anytime and anywhere. I've done that plenty of times, especially when you're told to put your phone on airplane mode. The best part is you can listen across devices. So if I am running low on my battery on my cell phone, I can pick up my iPad or listen on my computer. Now for Audible, you might be thinking, okay, it's audiobooks. But not only do they have audiobooks, they also have podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy shows, and even Audible originals that you won't be able to find anywhere else. Right now, I'm listening to The Haunting of Hill House. I'm on a bit of a paranormal kick, so that's why I chose that title. But they literally have thousands of titles you can choose from. If you want to give Audible a try, head to audible.com slash tcfcp. That's audible.com slash tcfcp. Or text tcfcp to 500-500 to learn more. Eighty-two-year-old Irene Silverman was a very wealthy woman, worth millions of dollars. She was born on April 17, 1916, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Irene was a lovely woman with flaming red hair. She was a former ballerina and loved to socialize and entertain her guests. She was known for the fabulous dinner parties she hosted with her husband, Sam Silverman. After his death, she didn't travel as much and took to staying at her New York townhome on a more permanent basis. When she converted part of her townhome into rentable apartments, she was featured in a local societal paper, which is how Sante Kimes came across this vibrant woman. Before they went to New York, where their scheme against Irene Silverman was to take place, Sante wrote a check for $14,900, for a green Lincoln town car to a car dealership located in Utah. She had the car delivered to her in Beverly Hills because everything Sante did, she did in style. However, this purchase would be her greatest mistake and downfall. You see, the check she wrote for the car bounced, and therefore, she became wanted for theft and check fraud. What makes this such a massive mistake is that Sante had several opportunities to make good on her check, as her deceased husband used that dealership frequently, and they were familiar with the Kimes family. So they called Sante for payment before contacting the police for an investigation. When the Kimes were in New York, Sante brazenly drove this car everywhere, and eventually the vehicle was spotted and pulled over. The police came across an abundance of evidence, it was actually overwhelming. Sante kept detailed notebooks as a sort of checklist on her dirty deeds. Every piece of circumstantial evidence police could need, they found in the car. Irene's driver's license was among the items found, and so were notarized documents to transfer ownership of Irene's townhome to Sante Kimes. Police also found enough evidence to connect the Kimes to the murder of a successful businessman, David Kasdan, who became friends with the Kimes. 
David had known Ken Sr. and Sante since at least 1992, when Ken convinced David to put his name on their mortgage. The couple had a legal judgment against them and didn't want to lose their home, so David agreed to help, thinking they transferred the deed back into their names years later. In December of 1997, Sante forged David's signature and convinced a notary to sign loan documents despite David not being present when he allegedly signed it. She managed to obtain a loan for $280,000 against David's house. He was completely unaware until he received a payment booklet for the new mortgage. He was furious, especially because Sante wanted him to go along with the scheme and pretend he knew all along, which he wasn't going to do. At this point, David became an obstacle so Sante decided he needed to go. David Kasdan was found dead on March 13, 1998, in a garbage bin in Los Angeles. Kenny later confessed that he was the one that shot David at his mother's request. Another example of Sante exerting that famous charm is when she convinced a homeless man to take out a 500000 insurance policy on her home. Naturally, Sante was only in this for the money, and almost immediately after the policy went into effect, the house burned to the ground, and so she collected the insurance money. Sante was adept at arson. She could con and charm nearly anyone, and she did. Right after the fire, Sante and Kenny beat feet and took off. They knew the police were probably on to them, so sticking around in that location would only lead to trouble. After this incident, they traveled around to several different states while they planned their next scheme to con a wealthy older woman out of her money, home, and many possessions. That poor woman was Irene Silverman. Once this murderous duo was finally in police custody, investigators immediately pitted mother against son in an attempt to get one of them to confess. The duo truly baffled investigators. They shouted to each other from their interrogation rooms, and they appeared far closer than most mothers and their adult sons. While law enforcement hoped that the duo would turn against each other, they didn't. Kenny confessed to his crimes, but Sante didn't. The trial for Irene Silverman's disappearance would not be an easy one for the prosecution. Murder trials without a body and no forensic evidence to speak of either can be challenging to prosecute. While investigators found all of Sante's notebooks and many of the missing woman's belongings, Sante maintained that she was friends with Irene, the ballerina, and Irene had merely asked Sante to hold some of her belongings for her. Of course, police didn't believe the story. But without a body to prove otherwise, it was up to the prosecutors to convince the jury, using circumstantial evidence that the mother and son duo had murdered Irene. Judiciary officials planned to try mother and son together. However, after a downright bizarre televised interview with the two, where they frequently touched each other, almost as lovers do, the court forbade them from sitting next to each other. They had to have an attorney between them at all times. This order didn't stop the two from leaning in to whisper to each other any time an attorney stood or walked away. They were first tried for the murder of Irene Silverman, 
even though David Caston had been murdered first. Sante interrupted the proceedings several times, calling media outlets to give her version of events. She refused to testify because the judge ruled that her previous slavery conviction could be introduced at trial if she did. Phoning the media was smart on Sante's part, because she could give her story without being cross-examined. Because of that very reason, the judge ordered that she could not provide any media interviews until the case was finished. Appallingly, Sante even tried to hand a note to a juror when the trial was going on. She wanted the world to hear her story, which was that there was no dead body, no evidence, and no way she could have committed this crime. She even alleged that her son confessed to avoid the death penalty. The New York trial for the Kimes was mainly a circus. The mother and son continued to behave oddly, leaning in close to speak with each other, holding hands and whispering to each other. While in jail awaiting trial, Kenny was beaten within an inch of his life. Sante told the media that police officers had beaten Kenny and that the entire case was a sham. She said they were being set up by investigators who were covering up the brothel that Irene Silverman had run. It was so ridiculous and absurd, but Sante was firm in her convictions. She remained steadfast in her denial of any knowledge or involvement, despite the mountain of evidence against her and her son. Naturally, jurors didn't buy their stories, and after a short deliberation, they found both Sante and Kenny Kimes Jr. guilty of murder and an additional 117 counts, ranging from theft to forgery and many others. There were 58 counts associated with Sante Kimes and 60 associated with Kenneth Kimes Jr. Sante was sentenced to serve life in prison for her role in the disappearance and presumed murder of Irene Silverman. Her life sentence was 120 years. Kenneth Kimes Jr. was also sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for his role. His life sentence was 125 years. Both appealed and lost those as well. Kenny was extradited to California for the murder trial of David Kasdan in March 2001, and Sante was extradited in June 2001. Because he faced a death penalty in California, as did his mother, Kenny made several desperate attempts to keep his mom from facing the death penalty. He attacked a court TV reporter, holding her hostage with a pen as a weapon, for four hours before letting her go. He also changed his plea to guilty and agreed to testify against Sante, with full disclosure, to keep her from facing the death penalty. It worked, and he gave full confessions to the murders of David and Irene, but he also confessed to another crime that the two were suspected of, but never charged with having committed. Syed Bilal Ahmed was a businessman living in the Bahamas, and he handled Sante's offshore bank accounts. In 1996, Sante and Kenny were in the Bahamas and met Syed for dinner. He disappeared after that, and his home had been swept clean, leaving no evidence behind and making it impossible to prove the connection to the Kimes. While Kenny did admit to this crime, neither he nor Sante was ever charged for it. Because Kenny testified against his mother in this California trial, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. She gave another statement at this trial, 
using her soft-spoken voice to insist that she was innocent and that the police and prosecutors were corrupt. Her remarks fell on deaf ears, though, and made no impact on the judge, who ordered Sante to stop speaking. Although California had the death penalty at this time, Kenny was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of David Kasdan. Sante Kimes served her sentence at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Her projected release date was listed as March 3, 2119. However, she died in prison from natural causes on May 19, 2014. Kenneth Kimes Jr. is still imprisoned at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in California. After the trials, various cable networks developed Sante and Kenny's story into several made-for-TV movies and specials, and authors have written two books about this odd criminal duo. It is a fascinating yet terribly sad story that this podcast barely scratched the surface of. The mother-son combination, coupled with the heinous crimes they committed, means that they will probably live in infamy. However, the crime spree they ran affected so many lives. So many people were hurt or lost their lives because of the narcissistic ways of Sante Kimes and her son, whom she groomed and molded into her perfect partner in crime. This pair didn't need to hurt a soul. They didn't need to lie, cheat, and steal because they already had so much. There was a thrill in hurting people, and that was something Sante was always seeking and couldn't fulfill within her interpersonal relationships. So she recruited her son, ruining yet another life in the process. All for the thrill of the crime. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram, TCFC underscore podcast. And of course, our website, is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining our Patreon or Himalaya Plus, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash tcfcpodcast or searching the Himalaya app for True Crime Fan Club. There, you'll get early ad-free episodes and exclusive content. And if you subscribe at the $10 level, You'll also get access to TCFC Prime, which is a whole new podcast dedicated exclusively to your suggestions. I'll include links in the show notes. This episode was co-written by Brittany Martinez and Mary Cole. Research by Brittany Martinez. Content editing by Brianna Morgan. Producer for the show is Nico at We Talk of Dreams. I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>